6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his session entitled, The Church Epistles. Then he has in this epistle the concept of sealing. He says, In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. This was something that Paul had a hard time really grasping. He was trained as a Pharisee. He was trained under Gamaliel. The concept that the Holy Spirit was, had sealed us was mind-blowing to him. He could remember King Saul. Spirit went and came. All through the Old Testament, the Spirit would be there and then he wouldn't be. In other words, it was, uh, he, he had his own volition. Here we're entering a period in which the Holy Spirit is God's commitment. A, there's a concept of irrevocability involved here. Which the, in which that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. The earnest is like a down payment that seals the bargain. A prepayment, if you will, to seal the bargain, and so forth. But then we have this incredible passage. People who have not memorized other scriptures generally have included this in their list. How are we saved? For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. In other words, the faith itself is a gift. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. The faith itself by which you gain the grace is a gift of God. Why? Not of works. Why? Lest any man should boast. God did, God did the whole job and he wants full credit for it. To try to add to your salvation is blasphemy. You're trying to add to something that God has completed. He goes on, for we are his workmanship, his poema. Same word from which we get poem. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now one of the questions you sooner or later will ask yourself is, why did God bother? God knew before he created the universe that Adam, given a chance, would blow it. And he puts Adam with his own free will, knowing he's going to get himself in a predicament that nothing less than the death of God will avail to get him out of it. Didn't God see this coming? Of course he did. All the sin, all the pain, all the suffering in the world caused by sin. Didn't God see this coming? Why bother? The answer is not in these two few verses. It's the verse that comes just ahead of this that people overlook. Not verse, verse 8, but verse 7. His ultimate purpose is disclosed here. He says that in ages, in the ages to come, he might show 
the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. See, how can God demonstrate infinite power? Well, one way you get a glimpse of that is look through a telescope and try to understand the universe. The more you study it, the more astonishing it is. Infinite power. The concept of infinite knowledge we can probably begin to imagine, not thoroughly embrace. But how do you demonstrate infinite love? And I suggest to you that by putting man in a situation in which to extricate him from that, it would take nothing else but the death of God himself. This whole panorama that started at Eden gets its peak at the cross at Golgotha is a demonstration of infinite love as we, we will spend an eternity trying to understand what it cost him. God's creation is phenomenal, but let's take a look at the, in the Bible there's what, a couple of chapters? A couple of chapters in Genesis, a couple of chapters in Isaiah, Job, a few. That's about it for creation. How many, how much of the Bible is dedicated to redemption? Well, the whole book of Genesis, the whole thing of Exodus. I mean, as you study each book, you realize each book is primarily focused on God's plan of redemption, all the way to Revelation, which is the climax. Another way to measure importance isn't just how much the Bible spends on it. The other way is, let's talk about what it cost him. What did the creation cost him? Six days. He breathed it out of his nostrils. The creation, as manifest as it is, he did in six days. What did the redemption of you and me cost him? The death of his son. I heard a recent presentation by Joe Foch that really touched me, where he described the last week of Christ from the point of view of the Father. Joe being a father, having had his son go through an emergency, we had to get to emergency and have deal with doctors that weren't really on their toes and stuff. The pain of the father seeing his son abused was vivid in his mind. And he, it occurred to him, can you imagine God the Father enduring the insults and the abuse of his son? Never, never dawned on me the pain, the agony, from the father's point of view. We generally visual, you know, try to visualize it from Christ's point of view. From the Father's point of view, it's a whole other dimension. Anyway, all this to demonstrate love. Now, there's another mystery that's in the book of Ephesians that we want to touch on. Back in Matthew 11, Jesus made a strange remark about John the Baptist. He says, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women... There hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Now, wait a minute. That's quite a statement. Among all them that are born of women, there's none greater than John. Except, of course, Christ. Let's set that aside. Verily I say to you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. That's quite a statement. But before he finishes his sentence, look what he says. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What? Does that mean John the Baptist wasn't saved? No. No. It's explained a few verses later. Jesus says, For all the prophets and the law 
prophesied until John. What he's saying is John is the end of the Old Testament. He says the same thing as recorded in Luke 16, 16. See, we need to recognize that John the Baptist is the closure of the Old Testament, not Malachi. That happens to be the last book in our Bible in the Old Testament. No, the Old Testament goes until John the Baptist. Was John the Baptist saved? Yes, but he was saved as an Old Testament saint. Jesus is introducing something fresh, and it's Paul's privilege to reveal it more fully. And he makes a big point of that. A mystery revealed. This is in Ephesians 3. The first dozen verses are very important. You see, it was no secret that Christ was to come and bear the sins of many. That's all through the Old Testament. It was no secret that he would be a prince and a savior to both Jews and Gentiles. Isaiah talks a lot about that. There is no secret that the Holy Spirit would be poured out. Joel and others speak of that. There was no secret that the remission of sins was to be preached. And the throne of David and all that stuff. All these things are in the Old Testament. But the church is not. The church is not. Well, what is the church then? See, this is what Paul's privilege was. In Ephesians 3, he says, How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Paul speaking which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. What? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. The implications of that are staggering. It doesn't mean just that Gentiles can be saved, but they are going to enjoy a relationship, a fellowship, being joint heirs with Christ. That's a whole other thing. And that's what's so astonishing about what's available to you and I. Many of us don't understand his epistles because we don't, we don't understand the answer because we don't understand the problem. You need to understand, uh, you won't really understand this unless you really understand the, the, the Old Testament to realize what a unique benefit this is. Anyway, the hope of his calling, the resurrection, immortality, our joint reign with Christ, the eternal inheritance, seven, these are all emphases. Perfect transformation of the image of Christ, all these things are his hope. But there's another verse, just to show you, the Ephesians is just an incredible epistle. In verse 18 of chapter 3, he says, That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being grounded and, and rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that he, ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Incredible passage, except, uh, what did he say? The breadth and length and depth and height? How many dimensions are there? Four. You know, the Bible is the only book on the planet Earth that transcends a three-dimensional universe in many, many ways, but here's just one, one example where we see a four-dimensional. And one of those words in the Greek represent time, by the way, of that fourth dimension. But then let's get to the final wrap-up in the Ephesians here. He says, In our cosmic warfare, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, he says, but what against? And we have here a group of Greek words that are actually ranks of angels. These are the rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places, and he's not just talking about, you know, ranks as we might think in Washington. He's talking about the, the dark world. 
That's what we're up against. So here's our imperative. He says, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. In other words, be completely armed. Put on the whole armor, not just your favorite pieces. To do that, you need to know what the whole armor is. When do you do this? Not during the battle. You do this, you put the armor on before the battle begins, but I got bad news for you. We're already in it and we're on enemy turf. Now many people think well, he's going to get into the seven elements of the armor. Most people assume he's, he mentions this because he's chained to a Roman soldier. He's chained to the Roman soldier so the Roman soldier couldn't get away. Can you imagine standing a full shift of duty chained to Paul? But, uh, and many people assume he's taking these idioms of the armor for, by looking at the soldier. That's, that's naive because he's drawing these idioms from the Old Testament. Isaiah 59, 17, he speaks of righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and the garments and so on. So these idioms are not unique to Paul's uh, experience there. But let's just look at it quickly. To be girded with truth. What is truth, Pilate cynically asked. Well, that's a big issue. And we obviously can't develop it here, but I challenge you to find out what that really means. What do you mean girded with truth? And put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate protected your vitals. A piercing of it usually was fatal. You need to have a breastplate of righteousness. And if you're relying on your own righteousness, you're in deep trouble. Your feet shod with preparation. Those of you who've been hand-to-hand -hand or boxing or wrestling or whatever, you know the importance of proper footwork. Feet shot with preparation. We need to realize there's training and preparation required. How many of you, let me put it this way, in one book of the Bible, seven different people on 12 different occasions gave a Bible study that always produced a lot of fruit for the kingdom, and we never do this today. What Bible study was given by seven different people on 12 different occasions that always was very fruitful, and yet we never do it today? That's astonishing. What is that Bible study? Presenting Jesus Christ entirely from the Old Testament. All through the book of Acts, when they presented Christ from the Scriptures, the Scriptures they're talking about was the Old Testament. They presented Christ from the Old Testament. How many of you could present to a Jewish friend the Messiah of Israel using just the Tanakh, the Old Testament? It's not hard to do. It takes a little training, a little outline to follow, a little bit of training, but it takes preparation. And the shield of faith. You know, the shield was something that they repaired between battles. You don't go into battle with a hole in your shield. Are there holes in your, in your faith? Are there things that bother you that you've never really had answers? Chase them down. Fix them now. Otherwise, they'll come back to haunt you. The helmet of salvation. Boy, that's a whole other subject. Just owning one is not enough. You better be wearing it. You can tell the people who don't wear their helmets by the bandages. But the last one, well not the last, the next to the last one, is the sword of the Spirit. What is the sword of the Spirit? The Word of God. We all, most people recognize that idiom. The sword of the Spirit. In the history of military technology, generally a long sword was an advantage because you had more reach. But the Romans did something very, very strange. They developed a double-edged, short, 24-inch machaira. And with that short sword, they conquered the world. But there's some things you need to understand about the Machaira. The reason they did is because they 
had special training on how to use it, and they practice, 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 practice. The same thing's true with your sword that's in your lap right now. You need to be trained to use it, and you need practice. Sword of the Spirit. The seventh is your heavy artillery. That's your action-at-a-distance kind of weapon. Prayer. Right now, there are troubled missionary opportunities around the world, and you can participate in those opportunities without an airline ticket in your bedroom by getting on your knees and holding those missionaries up in prayer. People come up to you and say, Chuck, what, what can we do for your ministry? Number one, pray for us. It is a warfare. God will take care of the rest. And then our final imperative, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. This is the imperative mood. That means it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Be strong. Where? In the Lord. It's in the present tense. That means be continually strong. Not just not, it's not a once occasion kind of thing. And it's in the passive voice. You receive the action. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Then just a picture of Ephesus to remind us that this was a real place. These are elegant letters with very, very high concepts. It was real people in real places having real problems, just like you and I have. That's what it's all about. Well, let's zip through a few more here and we'll wrap it up. Philippians rejoices through suffering. Christ in our life, Christ in our mind, Christ in our goal, Christ in our strength. Joy through suffering. Paul said, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. See, what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Boy, how many athletes use Philippians 4.13 on their signatures? That's interesting. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Joy through suffering. That's the thing. There is a passage in here called the kenosis, a very unusual passage in, Ephesians, excuse me, in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. This is sometimes called by some the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ who being in the form of God, deemed it not to be selfishly clung to, but emptied himself, wow, and took the form of a bondman, becoming in the likeness of men, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Ephesians 2, 5 and following, it's called the kenosis or the mind of Christ, the most astonishing example of humility possible in the universe, where God himself there's seven elements here. You can study it on your own. We better keep moving here. Colossians is another one of these incredible epistles. It's a response to the Gnostics. Gnostics comes from the Greek word meaning to know. This means secret knowledge or esoteric knowledge. Huxley coined the term agnostic, meaning without knowledge. You see people proudly say, well, I'm an agnostic. That's the Greek root. If you take the Latin root, the word is ignoramus. It, it doesn't go over so well at cocktail parties. Well, I'm an ignoramus. It doesn't quite work, but you get the idea. Anyway, the Gnostics claimed to have special knowledge. It was a mixture of mysticism, Eastern speculation, and Jewish legalism. It's fascinating. This has many forms, and we see it emerging today. Even in Hollywood, there's a big fascination with the Kabbalah, which is a, a Hebrew mysticism. The pattern is pretty straightforward. At first, if you reject God, you become materialistic. And when you discover that materialism, which tends to be self-oriented, is empty or vacuous, you then, and you've already rejected God, 
the next natural place is to look to mysticism. Is there anybody out there? And so uh, mysticism comes up in many forms throughout history, and Colossians is one of the rebuttals to that. Alexandria was a major headquarters for the Gnostics. That's why the Alexandrian manuscripts by Westcott and Horton others have come under some suspicion in more recent places. Eastern speculations plus mysticism, uh, man-made traditions and philosophy in a sense. Matter was considered evil. They even had a form of astrology, thinking that uh, stars were really angelic beings and they were somehow associated with heavenly bodies and so on. They also mixed into this some Jewish legalism. Good and evil were derived from rules. That's always, the, uh, watch out for that. Uh, circumcision or Old Testament dietary laws were embraced by them, strangely enough. So anyway, Colossians is in effect corrections uh, to these abuses. So there's a doctrinal, it's the fullness of Christ. Christ is preemptive over all things. And there's a lot of practical issues that derive from that, both individually uh, and collectively. And then he has a personal agenda. Colossians is a great book on Christology, the of Christ himself, the visible form of the invisible God, the prior head of all creation. In him was the universe created. He is before the universe. In him the universe coheres. He not only created, he holds it together. The head of the body of the church is a very, very high thoughts here in, the, in, in Colossians. He's the firstborn from among the dead. Key verse in Colossians 1, for by him, Christ, were all things created that are in heaven, that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. For he is before all things, and by him are all things held together. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, and in all things he might have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. We have the epistles to the Thessalonians, which are the culmination. It's actually the earliest of the epistles, but probably also in some respects the climax. We're going to deal with that in the session after next, where we'll, he'll remind them of things Paul taught them in the first few weeks of their Christian walk. We'll talk about the harpazo, the rapture, and all of that. And uh, in, the, in the next session, we're going to talk about the a review of eschatology, the study of the last things. We'll talk about amillennial, premillennial, what is the rapture, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, does the church go through trib, all these things will be done, not in the next session, session 21, the session after next. We have uh, the four pastoral epistles, which are pretty straightforward. They, uh, how many of you are in the full-time ministry? Can I see a show of hands? Good for you. How many of you are saved? Okay, how many of you are in the full-time ministry whether you know it or not? Okay, you're caught up with me. All right, okay. So these pastoral epistles appear to apply to all of us. They talk about the diversity of gifts, the depth of commitment, the challenges that are predictable. It anticipates the problems you are having today. These epistles are, are God's special message. Timothy was Paul's protege, and he gave him a lot of good counsel in terms of the assembly and conduct and so forth. And uh, the offices of deacons and elders are all spelled out there, the assembly in general and in particular groups and how to deal with them. The second epistle is probably one of the most interesting ones because it's probably the last epistle he wrote. He was in prison. He was in prison facing death and he's encouraging Timothy. I love that. I something's backwards there. He talked about true pastors under testings, the personal reaction, the true pastoral reaction. And he talks about end time troubles that are coming. And he also includes warnings. Some have turned aside. Some have made a shipwreck. Some fall away. In other words, the whole theme is finishing well is the challenge. 
You've got a good start. How are you going to finish is what some have missed the mark. Some have been led astray. See, our challenge, you and I, if we're saved, if we're not saved, you've got other issues. But once you're saved, then your next thing is, can you finish well? And that's what these letters are all about. Paul says, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. And he said, For this cause I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and that I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. He's the guardian of your real treasures. Titus is another letter. He, Titus was Paul's troubleshooter, one of his most trusted workers. He accompanied Paul and Barnabas on the difficult trip to the Jerusalem Council. He's sent on diplomatic missions to Corinth in Macedonia and elsewhere. He's, he, Paul left him in, often leaves him in authority. Paul, he, he's his cleanup guy. And he, and he has a great uh, epistle about uh, keeping things in order and, and how to deal with members of the people in general and so forth. Every art gallery has room for one little small masterpiece. And this list of epistles has one little gem at the end. Little letter to Philemon. Has a little salutation, a praise of Philemon himself. Paul's writing him to him. And there's a guy by the name of Onesimus who's been a runaway slave from Philemon. He's met Paul. He's become saved. Paul is sending him back to Philemon. He's telling Philemon to treat him. He says, you owe me, buddy. And whatever you owe you, put it on my credit card. That's really what he's saying. So Paul's pledge and assurance is there. And you see, what's interesting, it's an example of intercession. Paul is interceding for Onesimus, uh, to Philemon on the behalf of Onesimus. What's, it's a beautiful gem because you and I are also God's property and our fugitives. And uh, our guilt is great. Our penalties are heavy, just like Onesimus. And uh, the law condemns us and conscience betrayed us. And yet, uh, Jesus says, as Paul did here, put it all on my account. There's a benediction and a close on things. So, that's it. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.